This is Harry, I'm from Victors, and you're listening to Behind the Mic. Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Mic, a music event podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Crocker. Each pod, I check in with artists and musicians from across the UK and beyond discussing their musical journeys, their artistry, and most importantly, the person behind the mic. My special guest for this episode is MC Savvy Boy. Savvy, or Julian, as he goes by when he's not on the mic, is a master of ceremonies, events host, and entertainer. He's also part of UK music and events collective So Far Sounds London, which brings communities together to experience live shows. Crowd management, self-confidence and the black mental health experience are all on the menu for this episode. This is how our check-in went. Julian, welcome to Behind the Mic, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and giving up your time. This was definitely the easiest journey I've ever had to record a pod. First off, how are you, bro? I'm good, man. I'm good. This is the beauty of being local. Local boys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I met you, you should find how excited I was that somebody actually knew where Southwood for the world. So I was like, oh my God, yeah, oh my God, we're friends. The Central Line, four Cent- stops. Like, you're like, oh yeah, near Stratford. Then just go, just, just a bit more. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me, man. I'm good. Pleasure to be on here. No worries, man. We've got so much to catch up on and your journey is such an interesting one. So shall we just crack on? Let's start the pod with your journey as MC Savvy Boy. So first off, when did you pick up a mic, start to develop that on-stage personality and turn it into this brand that you are today? Well, picking up a mic, to be fair, I actually didn't pick up a mic. I was in secondary school. Well, what you call high school. I secondary school and obviously um, this very energetic class clown likes to talk for no reason. I just couldn't stand anywhere being quiet. It was mm. like, I got kicked out of the library like too many times. <laughs> Uh, just because I why was, did you go I, I had nothing else to do man i had nothing else to do it was the only place available and there were girls there so <laughs> it was it was the only way it was the only way the true I could, colors are now oh, being yes. revealed i had to entertain myself one way or the other but um so we had social nights because mm. i went to a boarding school and we had social nights every saturday mm. and at a certain point somebody had to host one of the social nights and uh, i remember mr Batus, very strange name my father maths teacher he was like you like to talk, you might as well put this to the test. And you're like, why don't you host the show? He called you out. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. You're like, you might as well put the talking to the test. I went out there, did what I had to do, and it just flowed naturally. So when I said I didn't pick up the mic, was, there was no mic. So I was like literally shouting, going, oh my God, like, what I call old school MC. Mm. And I went from hosting one show to another and another. And that's pretty much how I started this mm. and started talking in the mic. And just with the teacher... Did you have a good relationship with him and were you able to say... Oh, we were like a very, very twisted couple. Right, Twisted okay. couple. He was, he was one of those that believed, like most teachers, oh, you're not pushing your weight, you can be so much better. Well, you know those teachers that lie to you that you can be anything in the world? <laughs> yeah, he was one of those. And I was just like, nah, I can't be anything in the world. But yeah, it was good. He always enjoyed every show I did. Mm. He was one of those that said, look, one of the best things about you so far is... Mm. When you're on stage, you don't care about anybody's things. So mm. I'm not there thinking about, oh my God, how many likes am I going to get? I just pretty much talk. Was that innate within you? Did that take a while to develop? Um, I've always had some sort of entertaining streak. Like I was that kid that entertained the family members for no, just for no reason. Mm. Sit down somewhere, talk, talk, talk. As I said, you know, just keep talking. Always had stories in my head, made up a lot of stories in my head. So being the last child, 
one of the best things that tell most people that are last children is that you have this ability to observe a whole lot of things. I mean, I grew up in an African household, so mm. it's it's one of those, you know, respect and all that story. So you're pretty much just observing. And so with that, you have loads of stories to tell. Mm. Loads of stories to tell. I mean, of course, you have loads of people to take the piss out of. It creates this wonderful journey in your head. Mm. And trust me, I have loads of journeys in my <laughs> head. Things I've made up as well. So that's pretty much how we started. Mm. Can you tell me about the story behind that first mic night or first social night? You know, the anxieties maybe you had before going on stage, that realisation that I've given it the chat, now I've got to walk the walk. And in front of your peers, I reckon that's more scary than doing it in front of strangers. I had a reputation of being, as I said, class clown and funny guy. So you know how with boys, there's the good, the bad and the funny. The good and the bad get all the chicks. Mm. The funny is the one that makes everybody laugh. So I was that guy. When I got on the stage, so now the only thing was, how do I transmit this everyday conversation that I usually have to actually turn it into a program to entertain a crowd of people? Mm. So the good thing about emceeing or hosting a show is there's a program. So now all I need to worry about is to make sure the crowd is with me within that program. And then uh, when it's up to the bands, it's up to the bands. Yep, the and, acts, and yeah. once if I go introducing, <laughs> blah, 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 and this, I, I've done my part. So pretty much, I'm just there like a guide. I found it very natural because to me, it was just all I'm doing is entertaining people sitting down compared to blocks of people hanging around in the corridor mm. in my dorm at the time. And because I wasn't thinking, oh, I have to make people happy or I have to make people feel a particular way. It was not like pressure. No pressure yeah. whatsoever. Never been pressured. I think in my entire career, probably just once that I had some sort of pressure. Just mm. once. We'll get to that story. Yeah, in yeah, a we bit. will. We will. Where did the name MC Sabi Boy come from? Has it got a great story behind it, or oh, was no, it an no. accidental name that you came up? So with? in Nigeria, there's a slang called Sabi, which is you know, like somebody, oh, Sabi Boy, as in mm. yeah, man, this guy's wonderful. He knows his stuff. So AKA know it all, pretty much. Okay. The name actually came to me in university. And there's a friend of mine who always felt he was very secretive and hiding stuff. And I just used to call him out on every single thing. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, big secret. <laughs> and, uh, That's but, what you think. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I saw this story a long time ago. <laughs> so I was always like a step ahead of certain people. And it's the usual sabi boy. Sabi boy. So I was thinking. So my real name is Julian John. Mm. And MC Julian. <laughs> Not got the same ring to it, has no, it? No, no, he has this. I see myself in a bathrobe and um, <laughs> standing with a bow tie, going, "Oh, yeah, MC Julian." Nah, nah, nah. That nah, was one of those. So I, I said, like, "Sabi, Sabi boy," and of course, you always add the boy to everything. In growing up, it's like, "Oh, Freddie boy," or yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. like MC Sabi boy, spelled B O I. B O I is just boring. Exactly. Yeah. No, you had to be a bit of a ring to it, bit of jus, bit of oh, je ne sais quoi. So it's actually spelled S A B I. But good luck trying to get that name on like Instagram there were loads of Sabi boys out there oh really oh yeah so that's why I had to add the um, the extra A double and A and the extra I yeah I had to be different so I'm like B-boy yeah. <laughs> I had to do that to be different when it comes to managing crowds every audience is different now without revealing too many of your secrets how do you manage crowds depending on their age background ethnicity or even class do you adjust the way you present perhaps for a white crowd as opposed to a black crowd or a working class crowd as opposed to a middle class crowd. Are there any similarities or so, or differences? There are a few differences. So the major difference is between a white and a black crowd. And how so? The major difference is, this is what I think, this is what I think. So one of the toughest crowds ever is a Nigerian crowd. Very tough because in their head is... Oh, we Impress came, me. Oh, yeah. yeah we yeah, we yeah. came here to be entertained. So, And I've paid money for this. So, okay. Crack <laughs> the on. The standard is high. Yeah, yeah. The let bar us, is high. Let us do this. So, initially, they come with a defensive mindset, especially if you're not a known person. So, it's like, who's this guy? 
Uh, okay, this guy's uh, all right. And then with time, they ease up. And I tend, there's a lot of similarities between the Nigerian crowd and a typical black crowd. It's it's a case of, okay, you know what's happening. I've, I've just come from my job. Somebody said I should pay 20 quid to you, so entertain me. Now, the difference between the black crowd and the white crowd is a white crowd, and when I mean a white and a black crowd is, let's say 95% white, 95% black. So in 95% or more white crowd, they actually come there with the mindset, I am coming to party. I am coming to have a good time. I've paid money. So for example... They clap more as well. Oh, yeah. So for example, a white crowd and you go, everybody put your hands up and everybody just... <laughs> automatically, in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, this is going to be easy. And in the black crowd, everybody put your hands up. You see maybe like one or two people like... Oh. <laughs> oh. Why my hands up? So gearing into it. But in terms of not giving my secrets away, what I do is, depending on the show you're hosting, there's a particular crowd that comes there. So that particular mm. crowd will have a particular mindset. Uh, so you feed on that mindset. If you're doing a music crowd, people are going to come with the intention of, I'm coming to dance, coming to have a good time, coming to listen to a song I like. So you feed on that. If you're doing, a, I don't know, a corporate crowd. If it's every, more relaxed, yeah, isn't it's, it? It's yeah. more relaxed. They've got they, no idea about the music. They know, they nope. they? No. But they know that they're there because this is not work. This is them networking and trying to have fun and uh, relaxing. So you, I source the crowd based on the mindset I think they will have. And then, of course, it's all about making people feel. It's the feeling. Mm. Once you can make people feel that. I mean, if, and how do you feel when you make those people feel? Oh, that is the best part of the night mm. or the day. It's one of those that you look and you say something or you host a show and you look at that and you just see that guy smiling mm. or that woman dancing and you're thinking, wow, I, this you is created me. that. I created this. Mm. Is, you know, the whole, you, you remember, people always remember how you make them feel mm. kind of stuff. You invoke it from them, that's, don't you? That's, yeah. the, that's what works for me. That's what spurs me on. How do you separate the MC from the Julian who's speaking to me? Are you able to self-care? You know, how do you create that separation? There's not much difference. Okay. There's not much difference. It's Because um, some people it's a persona, it's a character oh, yeah. and some um, people it's not. Everything I do is pretty much a lifestyle, apart from when I'm pretending to be like, I don't know, Maradona on the football mm. pitch or something. I'm keyboard best pretend. <laughs> uh, but it's a lifestyle. So what you see is pretty much what you get. I am, without a mic or a crowd, I'm pretty much the same person. So in my head, it is, life is a journey, but in every journey, is a moment. Everything that comes up as a moment, it's me trying to not particularly say, oh yeah, I'm here to make everybody feel wonderful. No, but what you see is what you get. I'm not, I don't wake up in the morning and I'm not like Julian by day, MC, mm. some people, nah, none of that by night. No, I'm just, there's no difference. I believe if there's a difference, it means that I have to keep up trying to keep, put characters, which is no, no, it's like Superman. Tell me about your journey with So Far Sounds now. How did that opportunity come about and what is it for the listeners who don't know? Okay, so Sofa Sounds is a music platform and they're in about 400 and something countries now. It started about 11 years ago. The founders decided that they wanted to give the musicians a bit more intense connection with the crowd. Have you ever been to one of them shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah. to listen to and some guy is eating crisp by the corner. And I was anyone shouting. dancing, by the way. Uh, oh, oh, I oh. went mad. I was going ham, like, you know, you, you know me. You're the guy I like. You're the guy, <laughs> you're the guy that comes there and says, I'm, I'm coming to have fun. So they decided they wanted to give a platform to up-and-coming artists as well as established artists because so far happens in sometimes people use their houses to host there are other you know nice places people use to promote their venues so i do i MC for so far london and there's a show every day at least okay well when things were normal and uh, there was a show every day so what happened was i saw the um 
adverts, Instagram and all that story. And I was like, what is so special? What got me was that some of the venues are secret locations. So you yeah, find yeah, out yeah, yeah. you find out on, on the, the day. day or so, it's not good for future plan though, is oh, it? No, You've no, got no. mates you yeah, want like, last minute. Yeah, like thinking. Yeah. The, the good thing about it is that it's a secret venue, but they tell you the area. For example, they'll be like, oh, there's a show in Walthamstow. And so you know it's going to be somewhere in Walthamstow. You don't know where. And then it comes up. So initially, there was a show in Walthamstow. And I was like, okay, I'll go for this. So I get there, and um, when I get there, there is a setting up, the crowd is sitting down, and then an MC pops up. I'm like, oh, wow, they have an MC. I'm thinking, I can do this. <laughs> so I walk up to the girl that is the head coordinator of the day. I'm like, how do I get to MC? And she's like, oh, all you need to do is send an email to this website, blah, blah. It's voluntary, so, mm-hmm. so you don't get paid and all that. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Don't worry about the money. Just how do I do this? He said, oh, you send an email to this person and then they get back to you and then there's a process. So she was talking to me and I was sending the email. So I sent the email to a girl called Rachel or Raquel, Spanish. <laughs> so I sent her the email, stayed for the show. And the MC on the day was, that was her first show. So she was proper, oh, hi, guys. Um, <laughs> this is my oh, first show. Uh, so yeah, And I'm thinking, mm, I, I can definitely make this better. I can definitely make this better. So I didn't hear anything back. So what I did was I sent her an email saying, I can email you all day. Mm-hmm. I can do this for fun mm. until you get back to me. But at the time, I didn't know she was on holiday. She was on like a three-week holiday or something funny. So I was. she came back to about 50-something emails <laughs> from me. Just just going, when am I going to start? Uh, you, you must take me as an MC. Blah, 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 blah. You know, one of them just stories. Just slow cascade into the only like... thing. The only thing I didn't do was send a picture of myself. I was just going with the words. Hi, I'm just wondering. Um, I emailed you about, what, two hours ago? <laughs> and I kept doing that. So she got back to me. I was like, you really want this, don't you? I was like, yes. And that's when she told me I was on holiday. I was ignoring you and all that story. So what happens? You have to come back for induction. But I was like, no offense, but I don't really need an induction. I know there's a process, but um, I can do this. Because I have a website that's not really functioning wonderfully well. Because as an MC, I tend to do a lot of weddings mm. and house parties here mm. and there. You know, it's a struggling market. Mm. Struggling mm. market. So I sent her a website and she was like, oh, you don't actually need that. So we just want somebody that's outgoing and all that story. So I was like, I'll tell you what, let's just, I'll come up to the office. The office is in Camden. So I went there. Uh, had the conversation. She was like, yeah, cool. And luckily at the time, they were thinking of making it a paid gig because they wanted to reduce the amount of volunteers because obviously when you volunteer for something, somebody can drop out in the last minute. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can it's have not as much of an incentive, is oh, it? Oh yeah, like, yeah. oh yeah, my cat is sick or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, so they said, you know. Same with going to a free gig, isn't it? Oh yeah. yeah. So and she was like, we're going to start paying. Nothing wonderful, just a good payment. And uh, at least when you commit, you know this is what the situation is. So I was like, yeah, cool. So did that. I had so my first show because you had to go and shadow another MC. Mm-hmm. So I went my first, my second so far show. I went to it's a small brewery somewhere I can't remember now, but it's, it's very famous. I went there, watched the show. It was nice. I liked the way the crowd was. So walking there is you pretty much. We used to have a guest liaison, so you used to stay on there. And um, so now what I'm doing is. When I stand by the door and I see the guests coming out, I pretty much practice one or two things I'm going to say to them just to see the reaction. And that's how I saw some of my crowd when it comes to a sofa mm. gig. So obviously, they see me at the door. They don't know this guy's going to host. And besides, they're all there coming for a music show. So I call myself the fourth act because they're usually like three bands. Because normal MCs used to just go, Hi, welcome. We have this, this, this person. Enjoy. Bye. And I'm thinking, nah, man, these guys came to have fun you're supposed to entertain the crowd i know the emphasis is on the artists and musicians and the poets not gonna lie i just i wanted to 
have a platform to actually let people kind of see me as the wonderful host I think I am. So, so far actually gave me that opportunity. And um, did a couple of shows, got okay, nice reviews. And that's the journey with so far, so far. And uh, so far, so far, I like that. <laughs> that's it. So I'm, I'm hoping I get to get other platforms in the future. Let's hope so, man. Let's, yeah, hope, let's so. hope so. That's all I can hope for. And what have been some of your favorite events to do, which have meant a lot to you or your career and helped you make that night a success? Oh, favorite event. Hmm. There been loads. Okay, but if I have to, so I have to pick like one. You can do two or three if you want. Favorite event would be, so I, I take one wedding and um, one sofa gig. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the wedding now, the, the good thing about the wedding is, so uh, luckily, uh, as opportunities will come, I went to Dallas to do a wedding. Oh, nice. So I was there, I was in a wedding and um, another guy was there who was getting married in uh, months time. And he said, oh, do you, do you live in the States? I was like, you know, I don't live in the States. <laughs> um, I live in the UK. And he was like, oh, cool, cool. But anyways, what's going to happen is I'd like you to MC my wedding. I was mm. like, oh, wow, that's cool. Where's your wedding? In Austin. I was like, oh, that's cool. When? In months time. Cool. Let's set it up. So now the thing with this is that his missus didn't know me. Okay, and, and the she, bride normally oh, yeah, has more control. Of course, over it's, it's selection. The, it's a, yeah. you know happy wife, happy it's, life yeah. kind of story. <laughs> and she was like, "Why would you fly this guy all the way from the UK and pay him mm. when we have loads of very established MCs? America's big, as you know." She went with the logical, oh, yeah, logical she, question. I see. Yeah, that's yeah. the problem with logic, yeah. man. <laughs> Sometimes let emotions roll. <laughs> and he was like, "No, I want this guy to MC this wedding. I've known him for a while, and um, you know." Pressure was on him now as well yeah, as you. He was like, I need this guy would do it. So he told me at some point, I even said, mm, first of all, I hope you and your missus are not, uh, you know, you're like, no, 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 no. You fly you in, you come in a day before. And of so course- So to do that as well as a oh, friend, yeah. as a, you know, yeah, paying so your flight and everything. He was, he was like, look, I've known you for a while. I know you're good at this stuff. Opportunities, gives you a, b- a bigger platform and all that story. You get to meet, I met one of the biggest event host planners in America. Well, so it's a networking thing oh, as yeah, well. Networking you, yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, it's like during events and mm. she, she was wonderful on the day. So I fly into Houston, spend the night at his and then we drive to Austin the next day on a Friday and now the wedding is on Saturday. So obviously the story had gone out a bit. Why is this guy so special? Why they fly? I mean, I've seen his Instagram post, doesn't have that many followers at the time. She was uh, fixing 20K, 50K, yeah. 100K. She, so we got to talk. And because I have this process of, I like to know who I'm hosting mm, for. Of course, so of course. Natural, yeah. Do Zoom, research, yeah, yeah. Zoom calls, different timings. They're like, oh, yeah, we can we can only talk to you at 12 midnight UK time. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. That's fine. We did all that. So on the day... I, I How big is the wedding now? So now, th- this is a big wedding. This um, Thousand, thousand man? Um, probably not up to a thousand, but let's say about... Hmm, Five, six hundred. Okay. Yeah, typical Nigerian wedding where. Oh, I was a Nigerian. Oh, wedding. Yeah, oh big, t- big, big guesses typ- then. T- t- big guesses. T- yeah, typical yeah. Nigerian wedding, and these guys have some some good dough. <laughs> yeah, so they had people, and they were like, okay, so small world. Met a lot of people that I knew growing up in Portakot in Nigeria, and then I remember somebody saying to me like, "You seem quite relaxed," and mm. I was like, "Yeah, what else am I supposed to be?" There are two things that can happen: it goes really, really well, or it goes really, really well, and they're like. What happened to the negative part? I said, there's no negatives. We're all here to have a good time. So that already is a positive for me. So now all I need to do is enhance that positivity and make sure this wedding is good. That's quite a unique mindset to have. Not a lot of people would have that before such an occasion, to be it, honest. Yeah, the way I look at it is you're going for a show or a post or whatever. You're going to party. 
unless I say something so ridiculous as in terrible mm, like a bad joke about the, uh, the bridesmaid or something like yeah your mom oh no no like you know <laughs> one of those daft things you really can't go that bad as I said I'm just there to aid the event so anyway that happened and I must say it went really really well <laughs> yeah so it, it went really good and I liked it it was one of the best shows and then a week after that I went to Dubai to host another wedding and this was a friend of mine and I'd never been to Dubai so that too was very epic that was really good and um so did had, opportunities come after that or because of those occasions that you had done um very few okay very few as i said it's a it's a big market and i'm competing with um people that do this the wake up do this sleep do this i have another job or celebs who do it as well oh like, yeah you know, uh, the, imagine the dinner guests ima- imagine ima- ima- if he didn't stand up for me for the show with his wife she had guys i follow on instagram so guys are wonderful. They're well-known. So mm. people, I'm like, oh, I want to be like this guy. Mm. So the opportunity was given. Obviously, it's an American crowd. So most of the things that are going to happen is in America. Good luck convincing other people to fly me out when they have loads of people there. But I see every, everything as a good opportunity. And it went well. Now, the best so far show I did was, I would say, it's my first one. Yeah, first one. Covent Garden. Yeah, Covent Garden. So I got there and it was in a charity shop. It's a charity called Choose Love. Uh, on my Instagram, I've won their hoodie. Because I got there and the lady was like, oh, what are you doing here? Are you here for the charity? I'm like, no, this is a sofa show. And she was like, oh, yeah, cool, but I'll give you a hoodie. And she gave me a nice hoodie with Choose Love, which is one of the charities for refugees. And um, got there. So now my first cast was a very famous guy, one of the, Kevy Davy White. Mm-hmm. He was on X Factor. Okay, yeah, yeah. We finished third, 2016, mm-hmm. I think, or 2017. So I got there, very nice guy. I was like proper fanboy. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, hi, how's it going? <laughs> and then they had the Ganja Boys, a group from brothers from Uganda. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Karis Oban, this like a singer from Birmingham. And it was a very small, nice crowd. And one or two people. Once again, I stood by the door. Oh, you've been to a sofa show before, blah, mm-hmm. blah. A good amount of people had been to a sofa show. So they were used to the format of the MC just introduces and walks away. Bam, proper bringing music in, dance in, crowd in, engagement, and all that story. I remember I got DM message after the show saying, thank you very much. You should see me, man. I was smiling. I, was, I, I read that message like 500 times. <laughs> like, like, walking everywhere. The endorphin rush. Oh, yeah. It was good. It was it was a good feedback to get. And um, Kevin David White and the entire crew that was there for so far was really good. I said that's probably was my first one. I've had good shows after that, but mm. that one I always remember. Going on a different direction now, has there ever been an occasion where there has been a social hand grenade go off in the crowd or let's say a angry audience member or you've lost your temper at an audience member? Is there any story that you can share where something has gone wrong basically and you've had to deal with it? And most importantly, what did you learn from it? So I did a wedding for a couple and from the get-go, I could tell that that day was just not going to be... The vibes wonderful. weren't there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I try. I, I would never lose my temper in terms of, oh, my God, yeah, smash yeah, a yeah. mic on somebody's <laughs> head and run around. No, 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 no. I'll never, I'll never do that. But what happened was... That's so, a serious case of drop the mic. Oh, oh yeah. That's like, yeah, <laughs> take this and all that story. But what happened was, so it was a wedding in Chester. So I was in Manchester because mm. I couldn't get like hotels around that area. Got to the wedding. The setup was just a bit dull things are not working here and now as an MC, DX, so you have an event coordinator and you have the MC. however some people mistake 
the MC for being the event coordinator. So they want oh, you, I see. Okay. So they want sometimes you to, the, your promoters do the MCing and all that sort yeah. of stuff. And yeah. somebody comes to say, oh my God, something happened. My car was parked there. I'm like, okay, well, tell the event coordinator. All I can do is announce it. Hey, but you're supposed to be the MC. Yeah, I, I, I know, but that's not, not what running I'm supposed this event. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so all that happened. So now, I didn't get the crowd participation that I usually get. Mm. It was a bit... Uh, Frosty. Off, and I felt I was trying way too hard okay. at that particular point. I mean, even me, I was like, there's something wrong here. Things are not kicking in properly. So usually, if I sense... Because there are shows I've done and I sense that the crowd is a bit... Mm, so what I do is I concentrate on the people that are loving what I'm doing. And eventually okay. everybody joins in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's almost like, a, I don't want to be the first one to yeah, so have I, fun. It's a yeah. weird concept, isn't it? So I'm just... I'm, I, I pretty much like, look... You, they're having fun. Yeah, they're having fun. Yeah. So I'm as well concentrate on that. The set of people. But... It wasn't that kind of situation. But anyways, it went on. Things were going on okay. So now, before I got there, my lights in my car stopped working. So my indicator lights gone, my headlights gone. So I said, luckily it was during summer. So I said to the couple that, look, once we get to the part that everybody starts dancing, you know, the party begins, blah, blah, where I don't really need to be part of the show anymore. I'll have to leave because I don't want to get stopped by the police driving with no lights. So I'm pretty much using street lights all the way back to Manchester. They were like, yeah, that's fine. So they had a surprise for the crowd where they would go to the back and then there's a big curtain open and then, you know, fireworks and they yeah. start dancing. So now they snuck to the back when nobody saw them. So I'm behind there talking on the mic. So I did that and um, fireworks went off. The curtains all rose. Everybody shouted, Whoa! it was getting yeah. wonderful. That happened. People started dancing. I went up to them and said, I have to leave. And I left. The next day, I called the bride. She wasn't, she's not happy with me. I didn't do something I was supposed to do. And I pretty much have made her lose a moment she can never get back. And I'm thinking, what did I do? I'm, I'm confused. And it turns out that the camera crew did not get the surprise. Ah, okay. So, so that was my fault because I was supposed to tell them about the surprise. And I said, well, now let's, let's break this down. Who wasn't doing their job? Because the camera crew is supposed to be filming regardless of whether I'm talking or not. So where were the camera crew? Oh, no, I was supposed to tell them. I said, well, to be honest, I wasn't. I'm not the event coordinator. So that You one, can't second guess people. Oh, no. So, I mean, there were a couple of times I was like, oh, I'm about to do this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. They're there. But for some reason, they said, I didn't tell them that part. So she, she blamed... The biggest part oh, yeah. <laughs> that you need to, to tell them. And there was a time that I was during the show, during the wedding, I was talking and there was a girl on her phone. So I like took the phone off her and, you know, oh, who are you texting? Your boyfriend, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, you know, trying to make a joke about the situation. Mm. And it turns out that apparently I swore at the girl. And I'm thinking, I don't swear. You can ask anybody that knows me. No, 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 I've never heard you swear. I don't do the whole F word and mm-hmm. all that story. So I'm thinking, but if I think about this, if I swore during the wedding, first of all, I'm holding a mic. Everybody can hear me speak. So if I swore, I'm sure... You can't sure, do it muffled, can yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> So I'm sure you would have heard me say that. I said, what exactly did I say to her? Oh, I called her this, this, this. I said, but you were there. When I was making fun of her, you were laughing. So a private conversation yeah, on stage. So, yeah. so did you hear me swear? Oh, this, that, that, that. Anyway, she was very upset with me. It was terrible. So I turned down the money I was supposed to get for the show. I, I was like, no, don't pay me. And she, they were like, oh, no, but we have, like, no, don't pay me. Because according to what you're saying, I didn't do the job you were supposed to be paying me to do. So I turned it down. That's probably the biggest bomb so far in my MCing world. Mm. Usually it's... um. It's ups and downs. You see, the, the issues are always before the show because you always tend to meet people that don't know what they want or they, they want things to be exactly like this or they're trying to make everybody happy. Mm. And what did you learn from that? Well, I learned that the process is it's as good as the delivery. 
So concentrate on the process and making sure that everything actually works before anything happens instead of winging it throughout. Because mm. before I was just very solely on, oh, I'm the MC, event coordinator will do their part, I'll do my part, and that's it. But now you have to concentrate on the process a bit more and do your best as you can do on the night or on the day and hopefully everything will fall into place. The music industry obviously has a lot of problems like any other industry. Has racism or stereotyping ever been something that you've encountered whether overtly or covertly and if so what impact did that have on your mental health? Well the thing with coverts is that it's subconscious isn't it yeah. or it's the it's the assumptions it's the presumptions about you. When it comes to see, the thing with covert is that if it's covert that I shouldn't know because it's theoretically, a, yeah, yes, yeah, because yeah. It's, it's, oh, I mean, it's supposed to be hidden and all that story. I have done shows that have been lucky not to have that sort of organization. I probably have not been given a chance, and I'm not saying because oh, I'm black or, or I'm not this, I'm not that, but I think in terms of the subconscious situation, is that most people will either give people a chance the people that are like them or people like they see they'll be in the same class. For example, if say you're my agent and you take me to an event and you go, oh yeah, this guy should MC for you. First of all, I'm, I don't sound British. I'm very, you know, oh, hello. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they hold it, they aff, as they say. <laughs> and then because my reputation is not as wonderfully massive as you probably want somebody to be, so you might not give me the chance and that might just go, oh, how does this guy? So some people speak to me like, "Oh, can you, can you manage a white crowd?" I'm like, as if like you wouldn't be capable yeah, of doing that. Can you that? manage yeah. a, a Portuguese crowd? Well, yeah. I, I can't speak Portuguese. However, managing the crowd is not an issue, as long as you understand what I'm saying. And so, overtly and currently, I would say no. I've, okay. been, I've been lucky in that in that area. And mm. besides, um, I don't think I haven't got into the mainstream point yet that somebody goes, "No, nah, no, nah, don't like him because it's this." So at the moment, nah. Okay. Let's reflect on your journey now. Since being MC Sabi Boy for as long as you have, what has it taught you about yourself, do you think? It's told me I have a blessing and a curse. Okay, so in what I'm sense? A blessing and a curse in the sense that I tend to put people before me. So when I'm about to do a show, I'm not there thinking, what am I going to get from this? I'm not there thinking, oh my God, I've been paid X amount of money or I can get more money if I do this. All I'm thinking about is I need to make people feel happy. Or, this is the way I put it. So if I'm doing like a four-hour show, I'm thinking I'm the representation of a getaway from people's troubles and escapism. And worries. Yeah. yeah, I'm looking at it that I'm responsible for making this person believe that they have spent hours listening to me and the people part of the show just because they believe it was going to make their day. So it's a blessing because I try to help organize. Mm, you bring of joy to yeah, people. I'm trying, yeah. to, I'm trying yeah. to go, okay, fine, we'll do this. This person doesn't like this or this crowd might not like this. And that's me naturally. So I, I got the term blessing on the course from my dad because he's like, if you can put people before you, it's a blessing because the fact that you can put somebody ahead of you is wonderful. It's a curse because at some point... It might infect other areas of your oh life. Yeah. And it at might some make point, you, yeah, it will put yeah. you last. It will put you last. I've had conversations with people and they go, how much is your fee? And I tell them, well, my fee is this. And they're like, oh, um, but yeah, maybe we could do this. We don't have enough money, budget, yada, yada, yada. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'll do it. I'm trying to get the platform at the moment. And then I find out that they pay somebody else loads more. And at that point, I'm not going to go and say, oh, yeah, you know what? I'm going to drop the mic halfway through. No, I'm not. It's, it's already happened. Have you gotten better at that as you get older, kind of having that self-confidence to say, no, this is my fee. This is what you know, I'm, I'm paid to do. We either take it or leave it within reason. Oh, yeah. So you know, the confidence has never been the issue. 
but the thing is that people usually pay for what they know and i've had opportunities based on one person's or an individual self-belief that this guy is the guy so for example to anybody listening you say who's empty salad boy i've never heard of this guy so why should i give this guy opportunity oh freddie's word for example so now i know freddie no pressure on me yeah no pressure (laughs) so i know freddie has put himself out there and said this guy is good and i believe he'll make it wonderful so now let's say i wanted to charge five thousand I'm not that expensive. Just <laughs> let me just put <laughs> For that any of the there. listeners, yeah, yeah. Any of the any of the event promoters listening. So let's just say I wanted to charge five thousand, but then Freddie tells me their budget is one thousand. I would not say I'm not taking it, mm. unless it is one thousand that is crippling. I'm not going to make anything out of it. And to be fair, most of the time I don't really make that much. Mm. Obviously, because of the kind of person I am mm. now, you know, mm. not that famous, whatever, blah blah. And because I put the impact of what I want to get out of the job, sometimes it totally clouds me out when it comes to money. So, But what I try to do is I try to break it down for people. So, for example, if I'm doing a show in Manchester and somebody goes, oh, we'll pay you £200. The first thing I say is, now let's talk about the logistics. I have to get myself to Manchester. So if I drive, it's a full tank. And this is me assuming I'll drive there, leave the car, stay, do the show and come back. Or get in the train, train to get expensive, etc. Et train yeah. to get a bit more expensive. I have to eat when I get there, don't I? Okay. And I don't charge you for food. I don't go, oh yeah, I eat, uh, you know, oh my God, I'm... Uh, I'm billing you this. Oh yeah, <laughs> gluten-free hamburgers. Yeah. No, none of that. I'm just like, all I'm paying, all you're paying for is my presence. Mm. And then accommodation. So I don't go, oh yeah. So I'm, I'm like, I need to get there the day before, do the show, and leave the day after. And this is if it's far away. If it's in London, I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I'll make my way there. Don't worry. Tube, whatever yeah. is easy. Yeah, yeah, don't, yeah. don't need to pay for all that. Or you need to just pay me for the show. So I do that. Then remove that clothing. You don't want me coming there looking like, as if I'm in rag order. Like, yeah, you have your MC, he has a beanie hat on, and mm. I don't know, half his socks on. <laughs> but I, I have to look the part. Clearly, you wouldn't want me to wear something I've worn that everybody recognizes. I say, oh my God, it's a uniform. No, it's not. So things like that, I have to break it down for them to realize. And then we do all this. Then how much do I really take back? So you need to understand. But then somebody else as part of a show or wedding, you're paying them, they tell you a price and just go, oh wow, yeah, yeah, we'll give them that. Well, me, you try and get, squeeze as much as you can get out of me. And I just, I feel sometimes, I mean, everybody will always want to, and people always think that they're doing me the favor. Mm, yeah so mm. us hiring you is us doing you the favor and to a good point sometimes it's true if the if it's big enough yeah. yes yeah sometimes it's true they're like okay this is an opportunity for you to show what you can do but at the end of the day i think we're doing each other a favor but that's only on the proviso that it will get you more opportunities off the back of that yeah but the thing with being an mc is think about the shows you've gone to do you remember the event coordinator no okay and this is you, not you as part of the crew. This is you as a crowd member. Mm. You will remember the DJ. If the DJ is bad. If the DJ is good, all you remember is the music. If it's for a band, then yeah, you're not oh, as yeah. likely to. If it's obviously seeing a DJ, then yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And if it's a band, if the music is wonderful, you'll be like, oh my God, that music was so wonderful. You remember the band mainly, probably the lead singer, good voice. You're not going to sit down and go, oh my God, the acoustic guitar guy was so... <laughs> But regardless of good or bad, positive or negative, the MC will always be remembered. 
And if I'm remembered for a bad show, that couples my opportunity. So I tried to let people know that you need to understand that I am responsible, solely responsible for making this event lively and, and enjoyable. So the minimum I can do is be okay. I can't be bad at all. And that's what you're paying for. And that's what I'm guaranteeing you to do. And like other colleagues of mine, I actually don't take payment till after the show. People do, oh, give me half now so I can book in a date. Once you talk to me, I'm guaranteed we shake on it. I'll tell you, look, I'm not changing my dates. Even if it's just a matter of principle. If, if somebody says, oh, yeah, we'll give you 500. And I'm like, yeah, fine, I'll take it. And somebody comes and says, it's another show for two grand. I won't take the two grand. I've already, in principle, I've gone, this is what I'm going to do. 500. I don't want to let you down, whether you're cheating me or not. So, so that's that's me. So then I take the 500 after. A lot of people have told me it's bad business. It's this, it's that. I'm like, yeah, it is. But what are you paying me half for? Because I haven't done anything. And then before all this, apart from journeys I actually cannot make. So if I'm doing a show and all that, I like to meet the DJ, meet the event coordinator. And this is out of my pocket. I go on my own. Oh, where can I see you? Yeah, that's fine. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, everybody gives me the whole, oh, yeah, I, I might have five minutes <laughs> before I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Uh, I just need to ask questions. So that's the process. I said, never, I never let go. I, I don't just turn up on the day and go, okay, let's do this. I'm just going to do my part and walk mm. away. I believe the process is part of all that's this. That's professional, yeah. It's yeah. part of the part so of your offering, yeah. That's what I do. So it, um, it's, so the, the way I look at it, the destination is, remains the same. But how you get there can always differ. We've talked about MC Savvy Boy. Now I want to talk about you, Julian, in a bit more detail and go behind the mic. So firstly, I ask all my guests this question. Tell me about your early life, childhood, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences during this time you can pinpoint? Who's the Julian we meet here? Okay, so born, bred in Nigeria, Portakot. I'm a very proud Portakot boy. It's, uh, I don't know, a nice town in Nigeria. Just, we're just loud, so we like to be proud of where we're from. <laughs> Went to high school in Portakot, so junior secondary school, and then senior secondary school in a town called Calabar, which is where I'm actually from. So I was I was little, little annoying guy. And then at some point I just, you know, sprung into, not big, but an okay guy that at least you think twice before hitting. <laughs> and um, all that happened. Did university in Ghana. Mm-hmm. University in Ghana. Accra or? No, Kumasi. Kumasi, okay. Uh, Accra is for snobs. <laughs> yeah, that's what we used to tell them. Yeah, that's the them. London in me coming oh, out. Yeah, yeah, okay. oh, only in Accra, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Accra is for snobs. And um, yeah, so we did that. I spent seven years doing a four-year course. I did computer science. In the what happened with that was so at a certain point I believed I got to a point and I thought and I thought you know what school is not for me. Okay, and what was the reason behind that? Because it wasn't bringing out the interest and engagement I needed. I come from a very strong, educated-minded family, and it's one of those education will take you everywhere, which I totally agree with. And, um, the true social mobility yep. kind of vehicle, isn't it? Yeah. And at the time, of course, growing up in Nigeria, well, at least at the time I was growing up, it was all about profession. I mean, now it's different. People get into a whole lot of different things. But for the safety, especially what your parents want. Security. Safety, security. security yeah, get yeah. a profession. Computer science. That was my profession. During that time, I realized slowly that it's not for everybody. And when I mean it's not for everybody is that people will do a course in university and they will never use it. Or they will think halfway through that it's not for them. 
but continue and do it anyway. Yeah. Yep. I've always loved computers. I've loved the IT world. But growing up, during my university days, I had this dream and belief that I was good enough to play professional football. And that's what I wanted. Was I good enough? Now I'll probably say no. At the time, I thought I was. And I wanted to try it. However, it was difficult trying to get into the football world. And of course, my parents were like... Well, in Nigeria? Yeah, Nigeria, yeah. anywhere. I mean, I mean if even it's worse here in UK. Yeah, it's 0.001%, oh, yeah. isn't it? very tight. It. Yeah. Very tight. And my parents were like, you can do anything you want to do, but you need to just finish school first. So I had one or two down years, pretty much, where I'm thinking, I didn't really care about school that much. And then I'm thinking to myself, am I actually going to make it as a professional footballer? So at that point, I was stuck in the sense of... Sort of like life limbo. Yeah, in the sense yeah. of like, you know what, let's just whatever. And at the time, I didn't know. But when I think about it now, I would say it affected my confidence. Okay. In because, what sense? Well, I didn't think I was good enough for me for school. That also, when I think about it now, when I put my head down and study and all that, I mean, I did come out with a degree and I have been working in the IT industry. But at the time, I'm thinking, if this is not for me, why am I doing it? And then my dream and love at the time is to be a professional footballer. But clearly, it's looking like I'm not being good enough to do it. So where am I? So you were kind of struggling to find your life path, but also an identity that was linked to a profession, basically. Pretty much, yeah, yeah pretty yeah. much. And then, and now this is how emceeing even became stronger because every time I emceed, that used to be the highlight of a certain period. In that aspect... So that was your escapism? Pretty much. Mm. So football and emceeing. Because okay. football, I mean, <laughs> I wasn't playing on any professional level. I played for the university team. Was captain of the international students team, captain of my hall. Had one or two good moments. Ah, oh, remember the chest, the volley, <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And then the M scene. I always saw M scene. I never saw it as something I could chase uh, as a career. I felt it's easier just get on the stage and talk and do what I need to do, mm. be an entertainer. Mm. And I used to have friends. I used to go, you can make this big. The entertainment world is getting bigger. But I just used to go, mm, nah. And I think at the time, it was probably all part of my mindset. Can I? Should I? What's the point in chasing it if I don't make it? And then you always think you have time, but you don't. As much as you do, but you don't in the same kind of wavelength. So the struggles then, I went through a period of possibly about two and a half years where I was just going round and round in my head. And this is one of the beauty about support system, good friends, good family. I mean, I wasn't going around doing anything. Oh my God, my life is over. But I was nowhere. I was everywhere and nowhere. If only I had some sort of acknowledgement to the fact that I needed some sort of mental guidance. Because my friends were all doing well. Mm. The people I went into university with graduated. So did you get that FOMO? Sort of seeing them and comparing yourself to them and kind of feeling worse in a, in a sense? I always believed everybody had their own journey. So, But where the comparison came in was... If it's something I wanted, ah, okay, and somebody else, it happened for them. I'm thinking, I'm very happy for them, for but why hasn't it happened for me? So I was, I'm lucky. I've never been the type to be jealous or envious of people. I'm that guy that, as I said, I put people before me. Somebody gets something wonderful. I'm so happy. I'm mm. like running down the road and like, yes, you know, for them. But then it's always different when you think you want something and then 
it doesn't work for you, but it works for somebody else. Mm. Even if you're putting the process and all that's there. Mm. After that two and a half year turnaround, I became, like I always tell people, I'm always in the last stage. So I liken everything to the five stages of grief. The last stage is acceptance. I skip the first four. Skip them. So this what denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I skip all that and mm-hmm. I go straight to acceptance. Acceptance is key. It's one of my best phrases. You take things how they are. You try and make them better if you can. Try and make yourself better. Because most situations has nothing to do with the situation. It has to do with the people that are dealing with it. So I did all that and it took time. I wouldn't say I was still the whole carefree, laid back, do what I need to kind of guy. But then self-realization came in as time went on. And I think my mentality got a bit stronger. One thing that came up in our chat when we spoke off air, mate, was your journey in the British Army. Oh, well. yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people don't know that. I know, I'm I know. a trained killer. <laughs> yes. Jason Bourne. One of those, you know, one of those things. Yeah. Can you talk to me about when you joined it? Did you serve on any tours? And just tell me about your experiences within it. You know, what skills did you learn? And tell me a bit about that, really. I joined the Army in 2015. So one of the major reasons, I have loads of reasons I wanted to join the military. So I actually wanted to join as an officer. But at the time I was trying to join, they said I was too old. So the army had just oh, okay. the army had just reduced the age. Because I joined the army when I was 31. It was a funny story. So initially I wanted to join the Air Force. Crap. I mean the Air Force. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so what happened was, because the Air Force was still accepting people to 36 to be officers. So I did all I needed to do. And the way it works is, if you want to join the Air Force, you cannot be applying to join the army at the same time. So, you know, just focus. I'm forces. Focus on the so I did all that, you know, mm-hmm. studied all that story. I remember I met a girl, I can't remember her name now. We were doing, because the Air Force is very, you need to do this, you need to go and visit some camps, you need to do all that. So me and her were talking because we were going through the same application. She had an interview a week before mine. She went in and then she came out. She was like, oh yeah, so she sent me a message. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, I was like, oh, that's cool. How long did the interview take? 30, 40 minutes? I was like, oh, cool. What did they ask you? All that story. So... I go in. So now my appointment is 1400 Russell Square, the Armed Forces Headquarters, or Recruitment Headquarters. I get there at one. First of all, there's a problem with my paperwork. This, this, that, this person, then this. So luckily, because I told him everybody's name I had spoken to, who they were like, okay, cool. The interview started at 13.30, 1.30 p.m. It didn't finish till four o'clock. Wow. What was the reason for that? Why were you in there so long? I have no idea, but this guy was drilling and drilling and he was asking me things it's that like I apprentice sort of you know when they get to the final three and they get uh, clawed, this guy, clawed I, in my head I was just thinking she told me 30 to 45 minutes they're key questions they were asked they're key things you know now I'm not going to sit here and say oh my god I was answering everything wonderfully the things I didn't know I was like at this time I don't know it but mm-hmm. you know and the things I knew I was like mm, crushed mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. anyway he finished he was like I'll give you a debrief I went away had a tea coffee for like 20 minutes I came back and he said oh, you're good but I don't think you will wow the selectors so I think you should come back in six months' time. So I was like, he was, do you have anything to say? I'm thinking, what argument? I'm not going to argue with Been this guy. Been here for two and a half hours, I mean, you know, kind of energy. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, thank you. So I packed my stuff, went home. She actually went for a party. There's a friend of mine that just graduated university, so I went for his party. I sat down there, I was thinking, mm, well, that's it. I'm like, you know what, nah. So I go back and I apply to join the army as a soldier, not as an officer. So the way the British army works is you're a soldier first and then you have a trade. So my trade, the trade I chose was human resources. There are loads of trades in the British Army that you could choose. But I chose human resources. So then everything, application went through. I had another interview, same place, 
because the army, air force, and navy in the same wing. And same interview at two o'clock again. I get there at one again. I get there. The army guy comes down. Um, can I have a Julian John, please? I stand up and he's like, "Oh, wow, surprise, black guy, Julian John." Well, yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> he actually he, said, "Oh, wow." He was like, "Oh, wow." Jesus Christ! And I was like, "Well, you were expecting somebody different." And he was like, "Oh, well." The, now, to be f- did you hear the backtrack voice breaking? Oh, well, yeah, but no. To be, to, to be fair to him, he was like, yeah, it was actually. <laughs> I was like, okay, cool. So, do everything. The interview starts at 13.10. By two o'clock, I was at home. I was in the army. Oh, wow. Okay. So, that was a positive experience. So, then. so it went from, wow, this is, here we go again. To, by two o'clock, I was at home. I was in the army. So, went to did selection. I was top in selection. Then, finally, I joined the army. 12th of January 2015, winter time. Whew. Me and the cold got fond of each other. <laughs> so I did all that, did training. During training, so this is where you learn. I was the only black person in my troop. We started with 45 people. Only about 20-something of us made it. Was that ever a problem? It wasn't a problem for me because okay. I was the second oldest. Ah, okay. So you weren't like the young pup who nah, was able to get you know, was, bullied I, or whatever. I was the second oldest. I had seen life before joining the military. Most of the guys that you, you tend to worry about are the 17, 18-year-olds. Fresh is what, out of school. This, yeah, is, this yeah. is all they know. I mean, my grandma, my granddaddy said I should join and all that stuff. They become institutionalized, yeah. Yeah, so it, it's this is what I know. However, my section commander, we'll say his name, but him. So initially, he had had a problem with another guy in his last troop that he trained. Same age as me, black. But that guy was, him and that guy always going back and forth. I think it was a cultural thing. I was, I was older than all my section commanders. But obviously, military, they had been in the military for years. Mm-hmm. You know, this tall, that tall. Take a guy's eye out, you know, that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. I have a natural laid-back kind of approach. So automatically, they think, oh, this guy's lazy. So initially, it was constant, trying to push me, trying to break me. And I'm thinking, guy, I have seen loads of stuff in life. It's not going to work. You're not going to be able to break me. But it, they kept going. And this is simply because at a certain point, he thought, first of all, what you need to understand, I am freezing most of the time. Totally freezing. My hands are like <laughs> shaking and all that. I did winter training. So it was just on, 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 constant. And before I joined the military, I got injured. So I couldn't train as much. So we used to have back and forth where he was saying, he's going to try and get me to do this, try and get me to do that, try and get me to do that. However, eventually he came to realize that this guy is not... So I didn't know this at the time. So I'll find out later on. However, where the moment of reckoning was, was we were doing a serial and he was playing the enemy. And then long story short is I'm supposed to detain him and we're allowed to use force if the person is not being cooperative. He was, obviously it was me. So he was like, ah, ha, 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 and you know, trying to, yeah, yeah, I'm on an effing. So this is part of the serial and I'm there like, calm down, blah, blah. And he puts his hand on me. So I'm thinking, this is my chance. This is, this is, this <laughs> You're is. never going to get this again. Oh no, this is, this is the opportunity I need. So let's just say I slammed him. And as I slammed him, I could see the respect from his eyes and wow. And change, yeah. This yeah. guy actually took me off the ground. And then from that moment, things started changing. The way he started talking to me was different. Then I remember, so at the end of training, when I was getting my report, I'm thinking, this guy like slaughtered me. He's going to dub you in, yeah, yeah. But then he pulls me and he says, because we had a conversation once where we all went out as a section and we were just talking. He was like trying to get everybody's mind. And I said, you know, I can pull you in from being racist. And he's like, how? 
And I sat down and I explained to him, the same things you say that you shouldn't say. But because I have that experience to know that you're actually not a racist person. However, racism is not defined by just what you say, it's by your actions. So what helps you is that you say stuff, but then your action counters it. That's how I know you're not racist. Mm-hmm. That's how I know it's you haven't thought through this process. So there's the usual stereotypical things that people say. Oh, because yeah, you're black. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, stuff like that. But then you say it in a heated conversation. But then you do something else that doesn't full up. So, I mean, somebody says I'm racist, runs down the road, stab somebody of color or whatever, that crap that they do. But you, you're not like that. But I said a younger person, I said a younger version of me would have definitely called the others racist. So we had that conversation. So anyway, when he was giving me my report, he that's when he came out and said, look, I'm not going to lie to you. I prejudged you. Broke it down to me and said, this is the story. So we hugged it out and... We became, I won't say we were pals. I haven't seen him since I left training. Sure. And I, I got, but, and then he, he reminded me that there are loads of people that have this mindset in the military. So I should be careful, pretty much. And then I got posted to, I went for my phase two training. So the military, of course, learn how to shoot, do all that steady fitness drills. It's a lifestyle, it becomes a lifestyle. So, I mean, I still, I'm not in the military anymore, but I still maintain kind of a good discipline and lifestyle in terms of fitness. I mean, I've always been that way since a kid, as much as I've been terribly goofy and mm. trying to make people laugh but i always kept my british or my sorry my military life different the way so like if you see on my instagram and all that you wouldn't see any picture mm-hmm. of me in the mm-hmm. military i always kept it different it's um i just felt it's a different lifestyle and i don't need anybody to know how, how good i look mm-hmm. in uniform given your african heritage and you're obviously very proud of it there's also a deep level of pain that many people have in africa and in, in the caribbean over this idea of empire and the british is the british legacy in those countries did you ever get negativity from other people or particularly black people that you knew when you told them you would join the army did you ever feel that or were you ever conscious of it and have any doubts about joining it yourself because of that i never had any doubts and um to tell you how i took the process when i was trying to join only one person knew and that was my sister my parents found out when i had been given the letter saying that you are starting on social date and I remember we are having a meal and my mom was talking. Eh? And I said, oh yeah, by the way, I'm joining the military. She didn't say one. She just looked at me and went, yeah, anyway. And, you know, <laughs> continue talking. Because, yeah, yeah, probably thought it was a joke. Yeah, so nobody knew. It probably even like a year into my military career. A lot of people didn't know I was in the military. Because I, I never, I mean, I'll come out, go out with friends. My friends, very close friends all knew. In terms of an opinion based on, oh my God, you're joining the enemy. And I, I can't stare. I have certain reservations about the foundations of certain things when it comes to the British military and all that. I have certain reservations. Facts, not, you know. However, if I have that mindset, I possibly, because there have been other black Africans, as they say, Commonwealth soldiers, as they call us, that had joined and had a good life. However, if there's something you see wrong, the best way of addressing it is being in the situation. A lot of people meet me now and I said, oh, I used to be in the army. I'm like, oh my God, that's so terrible. It's ah, it's wrong. This this happened. I'm like, where did you get this story from? It's what they tell you on the news and all that story. So the first thing I try to rem- remind people of is the whole point of the army. I mean, the Air Force and Navy is crap. Ha. <laughs> but the whole point of the military is to keep peace. It's not to actually go and look for a fight. That's one thing that people don't remember. So I didn't have one or two people like, oh, this is happening. So why try this? How try, try and have a conversation. Let me... If you're airing an opinion, then I'll try and change that if it goes against fact. If it doesn't go against fact, then I'll try and change it based on common sense. But if that doesn't work, 
we've had the conversation. I know how you feel. As I said, acceptance is key. I'm happy with the way you feel, so we move on. And then one of the biggest issues I had in the military is that in the, the military, so I was raised to question authority. Not like, oh, no, I'm not going to do it because I'm stubborn, but why do you want me to do this? But one of the biggest issues I had in the military is I joined as a fairly smart age. As I said, I had seen life. It was the constant trying to prove you could, one moment you're wonderful, in the same breath you can be crap. And I mean, every day we try and prove things to employers, people, people we love, all that story. But it was a constant, always trying to prove certain situations. So you could be fit, you get injured, you're coming back through injury. So you're a bit slower in your run or whatever. And somebody goes, oh my God, you're slacking. You're this, you're that. So now you have to try and reprove all that. And that just used to go on and on. And you can go and say, oh, I don't care. But you do care because that guy is going to write a report that might promote or keep you where you are. Something else that came up off air mate was your desire to speak about the black experience of Mm. mental health particularly given your nigerian background you seem to describe this mindset that some people have whereby they say inverted commas you can't be depressed you're black or african Mm -hmm. can you just elaborate on why you wanted to talk about this the experiences and the attitudes within it so growing up in nigeria everybody's mindset as far as i know is one day i'm going to make it big and this mindset is even still with people that would say uh the aristocrats and very wealthy one day i'm going to make it big which means dimension for making it big is very big <laughs> the bar is even oh higher. yeah the bar is even higher and a lot of people think depression and this is from what i think i mean i think now it's different because there's a lot of awareness going out there i didn't know i mean my dad is a medical doctor my brother is a medical doctor my mom is a pharmacist i'm very clinically inclined in the family i grew up in however depression suicide was never spoken about never i probably didn't even hear those words till i was in high school oh what's depression and the first thing is you're a bit down about something i was like man up is that what you're down about oh my uncle died man up he's in heaven that's what it used to be said yeah yeah yeah. man up is in heaven and by man up this is male and female this is not just Mm. oh as a guy man up Mm. it's like oh i'm a bit this and that this didn't happen so dust yourself up and go up that was the mindset oh times have changed eh? uh, oh somebody goes oh i'm depressed you're black. You can't be depressed. Then to make it even wonderful, in Nigeria, you go, you're Nigerian. There's no such thing as depression. So that's the mindset that we had. And then when you see, as I said, a lot of things, it's easy to speak, but a lot of things come with action. Typical example, you could have a lady that sells corn on the street. She's literally surviving by selling that corn. And she lives somewhere that is what you call the hood or the slums or whatever you want to call it. But she's waking up every day, smiling, walking down the road, trying to sell that corn has kids walking around and she's telling you how i'm going to make it big one day where do you think depression sits in that kind of society it doesn't now in terms of mindsets people go i know there's something wrong there's something i can't shake off but my ability to try and survive and provide for my family and provide for myself is higher than what may be affecting my mindset so for example i might decide that i have a problem for some reason it's difficult for me to get out of bed I don't feel wonderful. I wake up feeling like I need somewhere to talk to. But then it, it snaps. It clicks in your head. Look, you need to go and get a job mm. that gives you money. Do you think that... The people has, relying on you. Do you think that has contributed to the people bottling it up, though? Because they place, obviously, you know, life priorities and getting that... getting shit Oh, down. definitely. People but are... But then they make it seem like so bottle it up. The way I look at it is, it's only a problem when you admit to it. Oh, that's how I used to look at it. So I used to look at it as, I don't have a problem. For example... I could drink like five bottles of whiskey and somebody goes, you're an alcoholic. I'm like, no, I'm not. I just love a drink. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I'm not drunk. 
I can see drive. <laughs> I, I can see clearly. You don't advise that. <laughs> yeah, I can see clearly. But I'm thinking, but somebody goes, you do have an alcoholic problem. But then you're thinking, my goals and me trying to survive and me trying to make a living is bigger than what you think of me drinking five bottles of alcohol. So why you call it depression? There's be a saying that says, so it's in pidgin English in Nigeria, which, mm-hmm. which they say, problem no get issue till doctor give him name. Which means it's not a problem till it is given a name. So, for example, if there's something going wrong and it's happening to three or four people in Nigeria or a typical black environment in Nigeria, they'll be like, yeah, those people are just weird. But then the moment you say, oh, they are suffering from some tiny disease or something, boom, then it's a problem. Mm. So now the next man now thinks, oh, I'm suffering from this disease. Oh, I'm suffering from this disease. I'm suffering from this disease. And that's how growing up in my time, that's how people looked at depression. Do you think it's changing? There's more awareness to it. There are a lot of people that go, you need somebody to speak to you're depressed or you have mental health problems. So first of all, a typical Nigeria doesn't like the fact that you think he has issues. So it's a pride thing. Big pride. Mm, it's a traditional... Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, you have issues. What are you trying to say? <laughs> Me, issues. Are you mad? You know, it doesn't... Uh, no. What do you mean that I'm, I'm a normal guy? So getting past that defensive pride thing. Now, with the younger generation, so the generation after me, I'm not that old, there's awareness to it. But even that, the awareness is, it is there. Mm. So the best way for me to keep away from it is to not acknowledge it and to try and get my mindset differently. So it's like one layer's been broken down, but another yeah, one's yeah. come so back na- up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the older generation are like, once you say, I'm depressed, I'm down, they give you like a backstory of that other guy. It's like comparing struggles. It's the worst thing to do. Compet- it's like comparison, mental health. Oh, yeah. Comparison. Yeah. Oh, um, mine is worse than yours. Mine is better than yours. Mine is more difficult than yours. Yeah. I mean, it's oh, a slippery slope. That guy hasn't eaten since last week. Look at him. He's still happy. What do you have anything to complain yeah. about? I mean, I think to a good point, the same way you have people that are real in the situation with mental health, there are people that easily succumb to it. So there are people that they have a downer and all of a sudden they say they have mental health issues. And that's the truth. The truth is that there'll be people that take advantage of the situation. And because the mindset growing up in Nigeria was we don't want anybody to take advantage of a situation that they can milk. It has to be a very, very, very... Like literally, minority. Oh, like yeah. The most severe it has to thing. Be, There's no spectrum, is no, there? No, no, no. It has to be something that, wow, well, maybe we should have listened. And then by then it's too late. I, I give you an example. When I was in high school, the university in my town, University of Science and Technology in Portacourt, there was a guy that was having issues with his girlfriend, I think. I think it was a bad relationship. And she was like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And he's still trying to go, oh, yeah, we should be together. And then she, he sees her with another guy. This guy, from his floor in his university, jumps off the balcony. But luckily, his fall gets broken by um, like a laundry net kind of thing where you hang clothes outside. Ah, like on the way down. Yeah, on the yeah, way down. Yeah. He crashes through it, so it breaks his fall, breaks his fall, breaks his fall, and then he falls and goes. I think he broke an arm or something. But otherwise, he'd have been like... Uh, o- otherwise, yeah. otherwise yeah. He, okay. he was gone. This guy gets taken to the hospital. <laughs> and the, the story I heard then was, so he's like, I love her and I want to be with her. And the people in the hospital were like, my guy, just move on. What's wrong with you? So you did this rubbish because of a girl. Yeah, there's something wrong with you. Next time, we'll kill you. Jesus Christ. And that's the mindset at the time. And let's just say, I'm sure he didn't try it again. Mm. But... The mindset was, come on, because of a girl, you want to about to lose your life. You have a future ahead of you. You're jumping because of a girl. You're lucky that God has really saved you now. Next time, if you want to die, speak to somebody to beat you up or something or get shot. There are easier ways. So now, 
it is a dust yourself up and move on. Nobody has addressed the issue that this guy actually thought that his life was going to be over because of that girl. So that's it. Was the, more why are you getting upset over a girl for? It's yeah. like, are you my guy? Man up. What's wrong with you? That kind of story. So now the good thing is that people that can manage to develop their mindset to a strong point, it works for them because all you're thinking about is we keep going. But then the disadvantage is that you don't recognize the impact of an emotional connection because to you nothing can bring you down some people will say oh have an exam oh well if you study you'll pass that's it there's no oh i'm finding it hard to, to study for some reason this thing doesn't want to sink in my brain nope if you study you'll pass it's that simple if you work hard you make it that's the mindset but it's awareness to it and it's breaking down however a part of me still goes a lot of people say oh you're always positive you're always i'm like yeah but it's a choice there is toxic positivity though. Oh no, are you I, always positive. Like, people I, hate when people say, "Are oh, you always positive?" No, you can be in your personality and accepting of your personality and be good and try and be nice to people and all that sort of stuff. But I hate that sort of toxic positivity. You know, you see on Instagram, it's like the life coach. <laughs> oh yeah, well, so, so it works for some people. Some yeah, for yeah. some people. Yeah. But it, I think it, the minute you start bringing that into people who've got actual like severe issues or whatever, so, and it's like just be positive. I'm like no. What part of the thing I used to do? I used to do a motivation Monday. On my Instagram, not done some in a while, but it was just about. So the way I see positivity is that you're recognizing the difficulty mm. and knowing that you're going to fight to make things good regardless yeah, of the difficulty. That's, that's the right. That's the right attitude. Yeah. So I'm not going to tell you don't be sad, but I'm, I'm going to tell you don't dwell on the sadness. Yeah, that's exactly right. But then even a lot of people are like, oh yeah, you're a little human. Yes, you are. I'm not saying don't be sad. Don't think that things cannot be better. But no. It's a choice. The way I look at it is a choice. And pe- people might agree or might not agree. Imagine there's a thin line and you're in the middle. On the left is positive, on the right is negative. Just walk towards one. And some situations, whether you're positive or negative, it's not going to change. So you might as well not be sad about it. And that's simply how I see it. We're going to do something a bit different now, considering it's the Behind the Mic series. And I want to call this topic Quick Fire Vents. I don't know how long it will last or how many times I'll do it, but I just wanted to give it a try. So, Julian, I'm going to give you a few questions to answer now. And shoot, you've got to shoot, literally shoot. say them at the top of your head the minute I ask them, yeah? Sweet. Okay, you ready? Yep. Let's do this. What's the one thing you could change about the music industry if you had a magic wand? Mm. As it comes into my head, as it comes into my if I had a magic wand, I would change the hold of record companies on artists. Okay, number two. What's the one thing or aspect of yourself you want to improve on as an MC next year? Mm. Improve on as an MC. Mm. Come on, these are quick fire. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, my voice. Okay. I want to have one of them Max Strong voice. Okay. Yes, I like that. Number three, favourite song to relax to? Favourite song at the moment will be Appreciate by Magic. Love that. What is the album that means the most to your mental health? Hmm. Favorite genre of music is 60s. So I would say the Sam Cooke. Lovely. And final one. What's the one thing you wish you knew when you were growing up that you know now? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I stumped you on that last one. I stumped you on that last one. But don't worry. I think that was a good, I think that was a good uh, little section there. So that's all for quick five events. And then we'll move on to the next topic. final topic of conversation julian and it's one i try and have with all my special guests which is a general natter about our mental health so firstly and you can include 
the circumstances we are living at the moment or exclude them if you want. But how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? My mental health is... It's not in a particular place, but it's not in a bad place. Okay. I recognize that there's a lot of difficulty Mm -hmm. in most things that we do. I also recognize that most situations is about how simple you try and make stuff. So I always try to look at things in a simple way. And because I'm very solutions-driven in the sense that... So I I don't sit down and I go, this cannot be done. I'm thinking, what can I do to make this better? Now, sometimes that drives me crazy because because I'm solutions-driven. If I can't think of a solution... And some things don't have solutions all the time, do they? Yeah, but I'm, I'm, it's as a, as men, we are very yeah, solutions like, driven, mm, aren't we? <laughs> solutions, you know, that's just. But and at the same time, I'm very laid back in the sense that it's happened. Question number one: Can I change anything? Not change, as in going back to change, but moving forward. What can I do to make things better? Is there a solution for this thing? Maybe, maybe not. Now, the issue I have with it is that because I try and exhaust all possible perspectives getting to realize that maybe there's no solution for this can be a bit long and sometimes that may affect me but then for example if you if you're unemployed and you're finding it difficult to get a job the solution is getting a job or starting a business but the longer it takes you to do that things are getting badly in your kind of mental health is it me mm-hmm. why does anybody want to hire me why am i so bad why can i start a business so now you know the solution is there but you haven't found a way to get it so sometimes that can drive you oh my god kind of story but as i said it's recognizing difficulty and trying to see what you can do about it Mm. what things do you find in life that trigger your mental health so this could be for example things someone might say to you it could be a sound it could be a social environment you go into it could be a sensation you know what can you tell me here or have you not figured all of them out yet oh i usually as i said acceptance is key so a lot of things people say to me don't bother get to me at all okay well that's good however the things that trigger my mental health is when a friend or somebody i actually care about a lot family members you know friends i've had for years when they're going through difficult times because the first thing i'm trying to think of is what can i do how can i help it's a people pleasing anxiety isn't it yeah or the people pleasing aspect i guess so because the way i look at it is if you're somebody i care about and you're going through situations or you're going through something i need to know that i've done everything possible that i can to help so this is where the blessing and the curse thing comes I'm the kind of guy that I might be going through hell and you never know because the way I look at it is I don't want to burden you with my situation because I'm sure you're going through stuff. So the whole, I'm thinking, oh my God, there's something wrong with Freddie mm. and I can't do anything about it. I'm not losing sleep or pulling my hair out, but I'm constantly thinking, what can I do to help? What can I do to help? And I don't want you to ever see it as I never tried to help. I didn't care. And a few times, maybe it could be the vice, it could, you know, switch because I might be going through something and I'm thinking, this person doesn't actually care. They don't actually care what I'm going through. And then I snap out of it and go, you know what, it's not their problem, it's mine. The responsibility is mine. But when it's the other way around, I'm like, okay, what can I do to make things better? How can I help? And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked? And maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? So the methods I've tried to use is I try and internalize a whole a lot of stuff. Uh, I believe I have the mindset to, that gives me a different perspective because I believe when you walk up to people and you try and talk to them, people usually try and give you advice based on what they've heard. Then the textbook advice. Oh, have you tried? And yoga. I've, yeah, Always the classic. Uh, yoga. Have you tried? Meditation, this? Oh my God. Yeah, if you yeah. try this particular tea, you know, and all that stuff. But with me, I give people advice based on what I know them to be. So, for example, I mean, no offense, 
somebody like you come and say, oh, I have a problem. I'm not going to tell you, oh my God, I tell you what, you can use the same method Brad Pitt uses. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're not Brad Pitt. But I'll be like, okay, Freddie, this is what I know. And this is what I think. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then we'll talk it out. And then that's how it comes out. So I have that conversation with myself a couple of times. Is this, is, who is this affecting? Blah, blah, blah. And then I come to an agreement with myself. Because the reason I do that is when I eventually have a conversation with somebody I think can help, I don't want to get defensive. If you start asking, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Blah, 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 blah. So I have that conversation with myself. And um, that happens. And then I try to learn from other people. I'm both sides of the equilibrium, if you want mm-hmm. to call it that way. A lot of people talk about, oh, learn from the success. I'm like, yeah, but learn from the failure. So I like to look at stuff from both sides and all sides possible. Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Julian, and it's one we try and break down a lot. For us, we hope that in a few more years and a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority and we can redefine what it means to be positively masculine and stop masculinity being shunned or derided. What would you describe or define as toxic masculinity and what examples of it have you shared or have you seen or can you can share with the listeners toxic masculinity so for example some people might say it's ingrained homophobia some people might say it's shaming a man for liking a certain thing or liking something that isn't manly in that person's eyes if that makes sense i think a lot of that situation happens to be when you accept that you're a product of your environment so people always say oh i'm a product of my environment no you're not if you decide that you're a product of your environment, it means you're deciding you don't want to be exposed and you don't want to learn. What do you travel for? Oh, to go and party in Ibiza. Okay. You know, there are loads of people that don't know Ibiza is actually a good holiday spot other than partying. So that ability to learn and move forward. So now, with the toxic masculinity, so I believe that where the issue stems from is the simple term that goes man up and not accepting and holding strongly to cultural and traditional beliefs now what people tend to forget is that traditional culture is usually stemmed from a group of people that agree one way is the norm and the other way yes so for example as you said homophobia is a big one even till now racism is another big one but then what's the point having a mind if you can't change it unfortunately the changing of mind is based on a man's or woman's exposure but i'll give you a typical example is most men and this is so I have I like to have a debate, or I call it a conversation. I call it a conversation because people get angry and I don't, and then it winds them up. So it stems down to the man-up term. Most boys believe you're the man. There's a particular way of being a man. You have to provide. You cannot be put down by another man. A woman is secondary to you. So imagine having that as a foundation all the way till you become an adult. And that's never challenged either. It's never challenged. It's what is is the norm. Um, nobody says, come on, have you thought about this in a different way? That also leads to the whole, I'm not going to take that. You cannot speak to me that way. I'm a man. And then you go out there based Pride, on Pride, ego. Yep. Exactly. It, all that comes in. I've seen it happen and I still see it happen. I, I mean, I know people that won't sit down next to somebody if the person is gay. I know people that will never take a certain ideology from a woman. Because, as he says, she's a woman. Oh, what do you know? Yes, yeah, a woman. You know. And on the flip side, I also know people that expect you to be a particular way because you're a man. Oh, what are you doing there? Yeah, yeah, man. Come on, you shouldn't be doing that. Boys don't cry, and all that kind of story. So, with time, as much as I believe there are certain things for a man and for a woman, 
But I think with time, it's all about opening up and trying to, first of all, it's understanding or meeting somebody or having a family or support group that understands the different situations in life. So if they see me crying, you should know me enough to know if this guy is crying. It's not because, you know, something is wrong or something is wrong, obviously, if I'm crying. But you need to understand why I'm crying and not tell me, you're a man, you shouldn't be crying. And these are things that have formed a very strong foundation with time. So breaking that down, it's going to be difficult. And just finally, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to? You need to let them know it's okay. You need to let them know that this situation might not be the end of it. Because as you said, most men, it's all about solution-driven. Why should I tell you about the situation if nothing can be done about it? It doesn't change how I feel or where I'm at. You need to also let people understand that most things are not short-term. Long-term is difficult. Trying to wait, hoping, thinking. Impatience. Oh, no, I'm a very impatient person. I no, am, men probably are. <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 man, man. It's no. got to be done now. <laughs> yeah, it has to be done now. If it's not done now, I can't sleep. The thing with that is, for the men that have managed to break down that barrier and are open and are willing to talk, they have to let people see it and let people in. And then with the younger generation, especially if you have kids, you have to build a foundation that makes them realize that it's okay. Because the real world is that most situations, nobody wants to hear you cry. Nobody wants to hear you talk about your problems because everybody has problems. So I think what you need to do is find a support system, not necessarily family, friends, but people that you know, when it comes to a particular situation, I can vent. And then still understanding that some people don't want to listen to you vent, but the people that do and always be there for you, it's okay. You can do it. And I think with time, maybe, things will get better. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of Behind the Mic. I want to say a big thank you to MC Savvy Boy for being my special guest on this episode and for letting me go behind the mic with him. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on social media, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or please write us a review on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating, or support our Patreon. Stay tuned for the next episode of Behind the Mic, and remember, it's always okay to vent. Bye.